Good morning. Have you got it? I bet you have, playback listener. Coming down with it you are. Once, of course, you know what it is. Take it away, Brendan. The word of the year is Riz. I had to ask how to spell that, or I-Z-Z. It's quite confusing, so I'm not going to try and define it. I'm going to give it over to a TikToker. Here's the definition. Riz actually comes from the word charisma that was initially shortened to Rizma by some Twitch users and has now found its way to the even shorter version of Riz. Let's use it in a sentence. Kim Kardashian thought that Pete Davidson had the Riz. (laughs) There you go. So it's the middle word of... Charisma. Yeah, so the Oxford Dictionary definition of Riz is style, charm or attractiveness, the ability to attract a romantic or sexual partner. There you go. So now you know. Write it down. You'll hear it all the time. Riddled with the Riz we are. And as we hurtle towards the end of the year, getting ready for Christmas was the focus for many programmes this week. Starting on Sunday with Brendan. The most wonderful time of the year. Scars of tinsel, turbans of mistletoe, mulled everything or... Duvet over the head, teeth clenched until it's all over. I think the world divides really into people who love Christmas and people who dread it. The, the people who love it, if you ask them, they, they love everything about it. They love the anticipation. They love the shopping. They love the presents. They love... The day itself, they love the turkey, they love getting together with their family, they love all the socialising before, during and after. Um, And those who dread it, if you ask them why they dread it, they give you exactly the same reasons. (laughs) All those things, okay. Psychologist Dr Maureen Gaffney. And regardless of which camp you fall into, there are expectations. Rosy-cheeked children in cosy pyjamas behaving perfectly as they open tasteful wooden toys under the doting eye of a caring but glamorous mother and a handsome, firm but fair father. All the stereotypes and all the pressure. You say Christmas is like an X-ray. It, it is, um because of all of the, it's that mix really of expectation uh, about what's going to happen on the day. Despite any experience you might have, <laughs> you, you still feel that this year might be different. This year might actually look a bit like the ads, you know, where these, you know, deliriously happy uh, adults like are all having this great time together with this perfect feast in front of them. Um, What's really extraordinary is that we have this image, we hold on to this image, despite the fact that when you ask people um, immediately after Christmas, when the memory is fresh, when you ask them, how did Christmas actually go? Um, About 75% of people say it was reasonably satisfactory, which I take to mean it was all right. Um, And about 15% say it was happy enough and 10% say it was truly miserable. Now, if you look at those figures together, it's it's hardly a ringing endorsement uh, for the season. But but nonetheless, the expectations run high. And for many, we return to the bosom of our family, the home place. As you say, this pressure to come home, I've never heard come home sound more ominous. Uh, (laughs) Everyone reverting to their assigned roles in the family is the classic problem That's right, yeah. It it, it really is um, uh, the most extraordinary example of regression 
You know, you can be a very successful person in the world, you know, in, in however you define success. Um, you 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 may have your own way of doing things, uh, etc. And every year you go home and you, you remind yourself on the way up or down to your family, you know, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm OK. My life is OK, you know, but you're yeah. mentally anticipating certain tensions that arise and and you go in and I swear within five or six minutes you can feel your heart thumping a bit you can feel that sort of tightening in your in mm. your gosh you know so clench the teeth clench generally feel the rage and push it down the Irish way and if it all gets too much go for a walk a jog a run a manic sprint if right. you go out on Christmas Day, as we always do in the afternoon, um, you see all these people walking and you can tell from their faces <laughs> how they feel intent. about Christmas that, that some of them are walking so fast that, that you know um, that they look kind of determined or anxious and, and you know that uh, they're either recovering from or preparing for, as they see it, the ordeal ahead. Uh, and I, I, I actually think the stress of Christmas that Irish people sort of have an understanding of it, because when I was growing up, it was quite common for people to ask you after Christmas, how did you get over yeah. the Christmas? Yeah. You know, as if it was a dose of the flu. Uh, so I think <laughs> there is a, a sense of that it, it can be a bit of an ordeal. Oh, but she did advise taking a wider view of the day, the dinner, the whole palaver, because Christmas 2023 will never come again. When you imagine now the people that are going to be around your table as a family, um, they are never again. The children, the older adults, yourself, anybody they're never again going to be at this age they're never again going to be at this yeah. stage of life and they're they're never again going to be in the particular circumstances that they're in it's great to mark that it's yeah. great to to actually say and 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 sometimes to say it together like we're we're all here together for better or for worse and that's that's an important thing to celebrate. So you'll get everyone with that. They, they were never going to be these people who are the kids no. are never going to be that age again. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, tear in my eye. This year will be different. And if we heard Maureen Gaffney reference our collective regression when we head back home with Alison and Ray and Ray, two Rays better than one, advice on how to manage siblings. I suppose, first of all, within family dynamics, um, especially around Christmas, but any time of the year, going to weddings, going to family events, you're always going to either take on the role you had as a child or a teenager, or you're going to be pushed back into is that, that role. Is that a given? That fairly yeah, much is yeah. a given. Unless you live with the Brady Bunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's just, like, it's just what we do. We fall back into our roles. And so the smart arse is always the smart arse and the kind of crier is always the crier and the joker is the joker. And it's really hard to move outside the roles. Partners can be very useful 
for punctuating and puncturing those roles. Kind of go, ah, lads, are we still doing that? Like, he's now 52. Are we still doing that? And it kind of, that outside voice of the partner can shine a light on what becomes normalised behaviour within a family. If you're there on your own, there's just an extra layer of vulnerability because you have no one to fight your corner. So sometimes it really is get in and get out. Wow, but what about dealing with the person who isn't exactly full of the joys? We well, wouldn't have them at the table, though. See, like, I would just avoid. You don't want people in your life who are making you feel low. But that's a family member. But that's a family member and sometimes you don't. You call over to see your parents and there's yeah. the, the uncle sitting there or the brother or whatever it might be, the family member, and you can't kind of avoid them. Right. What happens to many people is they go along to a family event or like Christmas with no protection, thinking that everything will be different this year. They open a, have a glass of wine, have a beer. Next thing you know, they're stuck there. And then once you add alcohol, emotions raise. You can't get into your car and drive you home. You can't get into your car and drive and very little public transport. So there he goes, another one, an exit strategy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like a, Chris, a Christmas exit strategy. We're full of love and joy today. Christmas. <laughs> oh, we're really not selling this season, are we? And finally... This grim comparison, make of it what you will. I always use the analogy of of Chernobyl. Sometimes we have to go into Chernobyl, but always wear your protective radiation suit and limit your exposure. Mm. How is that for a ho, ho, ho? But if you are going to fight, and let's face it, you are, fight fair. Here is Helen Vaughan of Maynooth Counselling and Psychotherapy with the two. Calm down, Helen. Calm down, will you? Um, Has it ever worked? Has it ever caused someone? It's to actually, actually I, like, it's rate. actually making me mad. You're exaggerating. <laughs> so it tell me work. this, right? You stop. Calm down, Helen. So some of this God. stuff. <laughs> It seems obvious. Basically try not to point the finger at your partner or label them, you know, not to call them names in the heat of an argument or not to say, you always do this, you never do that. Or, you know, I never said that. It's trying to have a discussion and not let it get to an argument that's not criticising, that's not blaming, that's not, do you know what I mean? Point the finger. What I do with couples all the time is get them to explain how they felt about a certain situation, whatever the issue is, and then talk about the issue itself, not the other person. Okay. Do you know so what I mean? So to try not to make it personal, even if it is a little, but, <laughs> you know, I felt ignored when there were dirty clothes all over the bedroom floor. I thought we were going to try to use a laundry basket rather than you're a dirty pig and you left all your dirty <laughs> clothes on the floor. Do you see the difference? I do. And what we're trying not to do is create a defensiveness in the other person. So then they're not hearing us anymore because they're too angry and they're busy flying something, a bomb back at you. Do you know what I mean? Like a counter attack. And it doesn't work. So do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Yeah, I think I'd like to be right. Okay, and I do understand, right, the points that you're making, but say, like, if we, some of those sentences that we shouldn't say, you always do this or you always say that. What if they always do? You know, or if... But then can you work I, if in you the never said, see? But, like, if you never said something, can you not say, I never said that? <laughs> <laughs> but then it's kind of... Back in a bit. Welcome back. The magic of radio, two tin cans, a piece of string... It's a miracle, really. Or just science. Physicist Shane Bergen from the School of Education in UCD joined Claire to ruin the wonder. So you and I are chatting. My voice is able to produce sound. And those uh, sound waves are travelling from my voice through pressure waves. And they reach the drum in your ear. And that drum uh, resonates 
with the same frequency and your brain is able to convert that into information and you can understand what I'm saying. And we both have a microphone in front of us, right? And microphone, interestingly, is a term that was first used in Dublin in the late 1600s, long before electricity or anything like that had been invented in the Provost House at Trinity College by somebody called Narcissus Marsh of Marsh's Library fame. And um, so that microphone in front of me is able to detect those pressure sound waves and convert them into an electronic um, signal. And it then is able to to be plugged into other things. So if we were speaking to a large room, you could plug the microphone into an amplifier and you could make my sound louder for people around me. And the electricity would be the bit in the middle that carries the signal. But of course, RTE do not wire (laughs) every individual's home in the country, right? So they broadcast uh, via invisible radio waves. And that's that's able to reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at once. Millions, you say, optimistic, but we'll go for it. And all of this brought to you by radio masts here and dotted around the country. And each of those has a transmitter on them. So it's able to take the electronic signal from the microphone and turn it into radio waves. So it, it, it literally, uh, there's an antenna on top of it. So the electricity runs up and down it and it, it creates these waves of light. And it uh, chooses a particular type of light, radio light, that we our eyes cannot see. And so those masks dotted around the country can broadcast these radio waves. They have a pattern. So they repeat in distance. So every couple of metres, they'll repeat their shape and they'll do that very rapidly. So they'll do it millions of times per second. So the radio wave that RTE goes out on, where, where I live, is it's, it's, I think it's 89 megahertz, right? So that means the wave is repeating 89 million times a second, right? Which is <laughs> remarkable. Our eyes cannot see it and it can pass through buildings, it can th- pass through people. Uh, the only thing you can't get around are large mountains. So that is what your frequency means. Yeah, so the How frequency. How you're tuning in. Yeah, so and, and so RTE is carried on a particular carrier wave. It's going out at say 89 megahertz and our voices and the signal that you and I are making now by having a conversation, it's hitching a ride on the carrier wave. So the people, all they have to do at home is tune into RT Radio 1. And then on top of that, you and I are, are catching a ride. Mm-hmm. OK, and so what we're doing is slightly changing the frequency of the wave very slightly. So it's called frequency modulated. And that's where the term FM, FM. comes from. Right. So you and I are our voices. That is a, it's a little wave added on to a big, strong wave. And we're changing it ever so much. And that. That is enough for that information to be broadcast to the entire country. And this is what is happening when you're tuning in RTE Radio 1, of course. Are there other stations? Surely not. So they have a radio, right? Which, And you think of a radio, what, what do you think of? It has basic components. It needs a power source, right? So it can work. It needs an, a speaker so it can amplify sound. And it needs an aerial wire on it and it sticks up straight. And what that does is it catches the radio waves. And the radio waves then run up and down it and they, they, they then in turn produce an electronic signal in the radio that it can convert into sound. So when you think about it, sound from my voice goes into the microphone. It turns into an electrical signal that gets broadcast from a mast uh, through an antenna that gets picked up by an aerial uh, in the listener's home, which turns it back into electricity and then back into sound. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff. And with all of that in mind, sit back 
and have a listen to this from Custodians of Ireland, The Majesty of the Sea. The seawater is actually alive. It's got traces of every single mineral that's on the planet in it. We're so linked with the sea. We came from the sea, the sea is in our blood. We cry salt water. Every two breaths we take, one of them is oxygen from the seawater. There's over 40,000 species of fish. Every single one of them reproduces in a different way. None of them do anything the same. All of them rely on signals and input and timings. And the more that you learn about it, each one of them is fascinating. That is marine biologist Susan Steele. She's the executive director of the European Fisheries Control Agency and a Cork woman. She spoke to Michelle Brown on Red Strand Beach near Clonakilty. And it was a visit to Newfoundland that galvanised her love of the sea and its creatures. That was what changed my entire life. I drove along the coast of Newfoundland. It was the time of the year when Capelin were coming in. And the whole beaches, you can't even imagine the fish. There's so many of them, they swim up the beaches, these capelin. And the kids all have buckets <laughs> gathering capelin. And the puffins, we were out kayaking, and the puffins are so fat that they just crash into your kayaks. You get this kind of bang sound when they're hitting the kayaks. And the, um, the, the whales, there's a lot of whales. But when you go along the coast, there's nothing left because the cod fishery collapsed. And the people have the same accents. They're all of Irish origins, or uh, a lot from around Waterford and Wexford. And the accents are very similar to here. The music is very similar. And you can see what happens to coastal communities when a fish stock collapses. And when I came back, the job came up in fisheries control and I moved completely because I could see that if we don't have good fisheries control, we don't have anything. Um, we have to look after what's there. When stocks collapse, they collapse really suddenly and really fast. From Custodians of Ireland. And more wonder on Mooney Goes Wild because in terms of getting organised, making a list, checking it twice, the octopus might well be ahead of most of us. Here's Amy Courtney, neuroscientist at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology at Cambridge. Is it true they use tools? Yes, absolutely. So there's one um, octopus called the coconut octopus who will take half uh, coconut shells and this would be in waters where there's not a lot of places for it to hide. So it would take the coconut shell Which along with it. Which have fallen into the water, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. Climb up trees to collect coconut. No, no. <laughs> but they can come out of water. They, they can come no, out of water. No, but I just clarified. The, yeah, the coconut yeah. shells, the coconut shells have fallen into the water probably from humans uh, letting that happen. Um, and they take the coconut shells along with them. These types of octopuses are also known to be able to walk. So they use two of their arms to walk along the seafloor. And then they put the coconut shell on their head like a little um, hat. And then they're walking along the seafloor so that if predators look down, they just see this like coconut shell drifting along. So it doesn't look like there's any octopus there. It looks like just the water is bringing it along. So this is a way that they can evade predators <coughs> in open waters. 
And some people have said that this is uh, evidence that they have the ability to plan into the future, which is a very complicated form of higher cognitive ability. So this is another way that they think that they might be quite intelligent. That is really extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> wow, kind of amazing. From Mooney Goes Wild. Now, this week marked two months since the horrific events of October 7th in Israel and the subsequent bombing and attacks on Gaza. This week also saw UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres invoke Article 99 of the UN Charter, warning of an impending humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza and urging its members to demand an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. On drive time, Sarah spoke to an advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister and it was a fairly fractious exchange, perhaps informed by her interview earlier in the programme with James Elder, UNICEF's spokesperson who had just left Gaza. I know that you've said on Twitter that, or X that you feel like you're running out of ways to describe the horrors that are hitting children in Gaza. They are, of course, the worst affected. Without a doubt, 40% of, of casualties are children. That's a that's an astronomical number, even in the horrors of war, which is why UNICEF has said it's a war on children. We don't say such things lightly. But, the, you know, for the last couple of days, the ferocity of this war, at least in the south where I was, resumed. And it was more than any... It was more ferocious than at any time. You know, the, at the hospital yesterday, Sarah, the number of children coming in with wounds of war, with the shrapnel, with the burns... Children playing on the street. I saw a little boy who uh, had just been playing with a friend and a bomb blast and such was the intensity of it that it hurled a bicycle at him, which gave him horrendous wounds. The bicycle came, you know, flying through the sky. So, yeah, they're, they're suffering a, a terrible, terrible brunt. Um, they are making up a majority of those wounds in hospitals. And as I say, despite heroic efforts of health staff, they, they just can't absorb any more patients. But the patients keep coming. Let's make no mistake, the bombardment has been unrelenting. And all of this against the backdrop of a fresh order from Israel for people to evacuate Gaza in advance of more shelling and fighting. As you say, there, there's a lot of confusion um, in Gaza about where people can go or when they should go or who should go. Um, I suppose to, to that first question, where can they go? Uh, Israel has, has given instructions as to different places that they should evacuate to. What are those places like and is there a place for people there? It's a very good question. It's an important question because, you know, the, the evacuation, given time and safety and, and safe places to go, um, of course, get away from the, the horrors of, the horrors of war. Um, but international humanitarian law speaks to the necessity to ensure those places people go to have the basics, food, water, medicine. They are going to places with nothing, Sarah. They are leaving places where, you know, a girl would queue for three or four hours to use a toilet. Three or four hours for a teenage girl to use a toilet or a shower. They are going to places where 10, 20, 30,000 people will be, where there is nothing. There is sand and dirt. There is not a single toilet. James Elder of UNICEF. And just after five, Sarah spoke to Mark Regev in Tel Aviv. He's senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And she asked about the request to evacuate Gaza. So if the humanitarian organisations don't do what Israel wants them to do and tens of thousands of people are ordered to move by Israel under threat of bombing and loss of life if they, if they don't move... Can I take it that James Elder from UNICEF was correct when he spoke to us earlier when he said the places that people are being sent to, women and children and injured people and elderly people, are, are just places of sand. 
there's no water, there's no toilets, there's no shelter, there's no food. That's because they haven't set up their facilities, and they should, and I hope they do so now. But what Who's is the they? alternative? Sorry. Who's they? To leave the humanitarian organisations. That, that's exactly that. Their job is to save life, to help them as civilians. Now, are they telling Gaza civilians to stay in zones of combat? That would be extremely irresponsible for them to do so. And, and does Israel have any responsibility here, Mark, if, if, if you don't mind me asking? Because Israel is the ones planting the bombs or, or firing the bombs. And Israel, Israel is responding. Israel is responding to a ferocious, horrific attack against our civilians who were butchered. Our women were raped in massive, like worse than anything anyone saw in the Balkans. Our, 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 our families, entire families were burnt. Uh, they butchered the young people at the open air uh, music festival. They just opened up machine gun fire and massacred them. House after house and community after community was burned to the ground with its people inside. We were responding to Hamas's brutal violence. And then came this exchange. When this is over and the people of Gaza can speak freely because Hamas will no longer rule it at gunpoint, mm. you will hear from the people of Gaza outrage, pent-up rage against what Hamas has done to them, what they have brought upon the people of Gaza. Oh, really? And do you think you will hear from you, the you people You don't of... sound serious. You think well, really the people well, of Gaza I'm, I'm putting, support I, Hamas? Why no, are you so cynical? Sorry, do you really I, I, I tell you, that they wanted this okay, war? You, you, you do you really telling... think the people of Gaza wanted, wanted this war? All right. I mean, that's illogical what you've just said. Uh, well, I didn't say anything. I just said really. You said that you said really. Yeah. The um, people of Gaza are victims of Hamas. They have been ruling Gaza for 16 years, Hamas. Mm -hmm. And what have they brought the people of Gaza? They've brought them bloodshed and misery right. and poverty. What has, I'll ask I you, do. what has Hamas got to show for 16 years of rule, except for a record of bloodshed that is almost unparalleled? I do have to challenge, though, any assertion that the people of Gaza will be grateful for what Israel is doing. 100%. When this is over and they're free of, of Hamas, just as the people of Iraq and Syria are free of ISIS after the Western coalition uh, uh, reduced, uh, you know, destroyed their territorial enclave, we will destroy at Hamas's rule over Gaza. Let me be clear, we're doing it for our own reasons. They attacked us viciously. Mm -hmm. They've said openly that they would attack us again and again and again if given the opportunity. But in, in, in destroying Hamas, we are doing Palestinians in Gaza a favour once again. They've been in power for 16 years. You know the situation in the right. Gaza Strip. You Mark, know what their record you, is. Locked, Surely sorry, the people of Gaza would be better with it. Putting, putting a point to you. you you've you've locked them in an area where they can't get out. You've denied them of food, water, shelter. You've bombed their hospitals. You've destroyed over 50% of their homes. You've killed their family members. You've killed their children. I don't understand how you genuinely believe the people of Gaza will be grateful to Israel for what you're doing. 100%. I have no doubt. War is a terrible thing. And again, his assertion that Israel's actions were in retaliation for the actions of Hamas. Self-defence. It was what he said any country would do. We are doing what any country would to defend its people. And, and I would ask you the following question. Hamas has no responsibility? Hamas, you've, you've barely mentioned them in this interview. Hamas, which deliberately butchers our people and at the same time uses its own civilians 
as cannon fodder right. for its extreme radical militant ideology, right. which which you are, which you are not which, doing what any country would. Uh, there are estimates of the casualties. I disagree. Well, I disagree. Well, I disagree. And right, I would if ask you, the following if question: If someone attacked Ireland, if someone attacked Ireland and butchered your people, how would you respond? If someone attacked Ireland and butchered your people, I just put a point to you. Would you New expect York, your government not to defend your people? The New York Times have put have done um, an analysis of the amount of people that have been killed in the timeline in which they been killed and they say people in Gaza are being killed more quickly than the, than the deadliest moments of the US-led attacks in Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan. This is not what any country would do. Can I ask you about aid so supply I, lines? I can tell please? you, no, I disagree. I disagree with what you've said. All right, uh, I've been fine. in meetings with US officials and I can tell you that when this is over and the Hamas propaganda is put aside and people know the real numbers, mm-hmm. I have no doubt, I have no doubt whatsoever that when we compare the combat civilian ratio, which is the number of intended deaths, that's people that we want to kill, that's the Hamas terrorists. All right. And innocent civilians who we don't, don't want to see hurt. But I, I just want to tell you, I think Israel and the Israeli Defense Forces, it'll be clear to everyone what efforts we made to safeguard Gaza's civilian population. You've restricted... Mark Regev, Senior Advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, with Sarah on Drive Time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Liveline, Caroline. She likes a bit of saving. Obsessive? Well, define obsessive. I absolutely, this is my favourite subject in the world. I drive my friends mad. Great. So... You can see everything on the app, on your uh, Borgosh. I'm with Borgosh okay. And so it tells you exactly how, many, how much you've spent on that day. Okay. And the week, the month, you know, etc. And you can see Brilliant. everything yeah. that's going on. So since I got the smart meter, uh, I've been just going crazy. I, can, I consistently check it. I, do, I, do, I have free Sunday as well. Okay, explain explain so, free Sunday. Okay, well, now, I don't know if everybody's the same as me, but okay. Sunday is a, is a big day for me. So I get up. I The night before, I put the washing on at around 3 o'clock. In the morning? In the middle of the night. Okay. In the, I, it's, I, it's timed. I, okay. I, it's on a timer. So it goes off. So that on, on Sunday, my car is already plugged in. That stays plugged in all day to recharge. Okay. I get my washing from the washing machine, put it into the dryer, which is only used on a Sunday between 9 and 5, and then I spend whatever amount of the day that getting all the washing and drying done. And how many washes I would re- you do? Dark, light, how many washes? Do, six, okay. Uh, only on a six. Sunday? Only, only on, a Sunday. on a Sunday. Okay, okay. No washing is done during the week. So six, six washes, six tumble dryers. Yeah. The and car is charging, I- and it's a fully electric car. Yeah. Dishwasher? Dishwasher goes on. If Obviously, I have to use the dishwasher, but that goes on in the middle of the night. Okay. On um, a timer. Immersion? Never. Because I'm a savvy woman, Joe, not a fool. And wherever you go, there will be light. And I've sensory lights all the way in the hall, the landing, the toilets. So when you walk around downstairs at night, everything just goes on for you. And they re- they're all recharged on a Sunday. So tell me, how did you discover that you have a free Sunday with this smart meter through board? Gosh, does everyone know this? No, they don't. Uh, I work in a shop part time and I'm always telling the customers and they go, oh, really? I've never heard of that. I said, ring them up. 
and get your free Sunday, but only if you're going to use it like I do. Do you know what I mean? Then other people might say, well, I'm not spending my Sunday or my Saturday. You can get it on Saturday as well. I'm not spending my Saturday or Sunday doing that. And that's fair enough. I love it. Now, at this stage, if you're not Caroline, which I think is fair to say is most of us, you might be feeling a little bad about your life choices. Wasteful throwing good money after bad. But some people rang in to query her savings. But it wasn't stopping Caroline. Doing everything on a Sunday. I absolutely love it. Is your life, does your life not become joyless when you're you're watching everything? No, it's relaxing. When you when you do this, Caroline, when you sit back down on the couch, are you pouring? Are you satisfied? Are I'm you smiling? <laughs> From Liveline, Wonka is in the cinema. Timothy Chalamet stepping out. Reviewers Declan Burke and Gemma Cray joined Sean, and after the unmentionable remake, <gasps> should we be afraid? Touch Willy Wonka at your peril, as Johnny Depp found out, I think. Yeah, I, I thought we had agreed not to mention uh, the Depp travesty, I think we're calling it at this stage. You're being kind, uh, Sure. Moving on. For this is an origin story. A young entrepreneurial Wonka selling chocolates. Essentially a startup. He plays this wonderful line where he's an ingenue, where he's very naive and gullible. Like when mm. we meet Gene Wilder, you know, he's closed off, he's shut his factory. Ah, but he's grown mm. out of these experiences, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But you can see how he's become really yeah. cynical. But actually, this is a beautiful nod to that because, yeah. you know, Timothy is so wide eyed and optimistic and like he's human trafficked in the yeah. beginning of this, yeah. essentially. That, you know, this so is the, the darkness beginning of, of Roald Dahl yeah. is there. Yeah, I I would say without the meat behind it, it's it touches on these dark things, but it's yeah. all very broad picture, and it doesn't like. I think that the thing about his is there's a real darkness, and there's a truth yeah. to his work that yeah. I think is missing from this. Right. It's it's silly and it's fun, and I think that's the level it's. Ah, right, at. it's 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 missing that uh, that uh, edgy ap- aspect of the the dial work. But we do get this umpa loompa. Hugh Grant, can he do any wrong at the moment, I wonder? Uh, well, he certainly can't in, in Wonka. Uh, and, and Hugh Grant is just appears to resist on. He I is, mean, he he's a pint-sized Oompa Loompa. And the genius is that he plays it with a complete straight bat. This poor-faced guy, he, he, he's on his own mission and he's trying to thwart, uh, not to give him much away, he's trying to thwart Willy Wonka in, in his own way. This could well be, we've seen the minions yeah, you know, yeah. run away with Despicable Me. I could see Hugh Grant getting his own franchise, Oompa Loompa <laughs> franchise. It's absolutely brilliant every time he steps on. Oh, sounds good, but enough of this. Give us the stars. I think, I think the visuals alone, it's such a spectacle. It really captures that that like level of theatrical mm. production that the original has. And you, you would be starving leaving it. So <laughs> I'd say three and a half stars. Three and a half from you. And what are you saying, Declan? Yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of that. Uh, very charming, very sweet, optimistic. If you like the Paddington movies, you love this. Not quite dark enough for me as well as yeah. to refer back to what Gemma was saying, but a strong four stars all a, the same. A strong four stars. So Timothy Chalamet has managed to recreate a version of Willy Wonka that we that we might hold on to and not have to forget like Johnny Depp. <laughs> From Arena. Now, if you have golfers in your family, well, nobody's perfect. But keep them happy with some new balls because they will be playing with the same ones as the professionals. Equality finally in golfing circles. Greg Allen explained it all to Cormac. It's called the golf ball rollback. What does that mean then? 
So they're going to roll back the golf ball by up to 15%, but much probably likely less than that. And the likelihood will be that uh, in the case of, say, Rory McIlroy, he'll only going to hit, he's only going to hit the ball 310 yards rather than 340 <laughs> yards. Yeah. But, but for the average player... Is it, will they make the golf ball heavier? They'll, no, they'll, they'll, they'll limit the amount of rebound effect that's inside in the core of the golf ball. And that will, you know, it'll be limited to a certain point and it'll have to conform... Uh, there has been the suggestion that there will be one golf ball for the elite players, the mm-hmm. professionals, and then the ordinary ball that is there today remains for the average amateur player. But that now seems to be knocked on the head. Uh, that was out there. That was likely to be what was going to happen. But now they've had a lot of feedback, the Royal and Ancient and the United States Golf Association, over the last six months. And in that period, it's actually been a period of three years, but mostly in the last six months, they've looked for responses from the general public and from vested interests. And they're now just going to say, no, if there's going to be a rollback, it's going to be for everyone. So the same golf ball for Car- Mark O'Hara and Rory McIlroy. Absolutely. <laughs> and all of this because of the green agenda. Oh, you can do nothing. There is a sustainability issue here. Golf courses are, in many cases, finite areas of ground. A golf ball that keeps travelling further and further and further. And by comparison to, say, the 1980s, 1990s, uh, the golf ball is travelling for the elite players 30 to 40 yards longer. And golf courses have gone from around 6,800 yards to 7,000 yards per average PGA Tour round to heading towards 8,000 yards. So there's only so much land available for golf courses. So if you get a golf course that's particularly confined in a city area uh, with boundaries and houses and back gardens, there's a danger as well because a golf ball is a, a lethal weapon if it's travelling at 150 miles an hour or whatever it is. there's a climate element. Now, many are in favour of this. It favours skill over welly. Those not in favour, the people making the golf balls. The manufacturers don't want to change anything because, you know, how far the golf ball goes is the subject of an awful lot of research and development over the years, which has cost millions upon millions, but has generated many more millions in profits. Mm -hmm. So they they don't want to see anything happen to their profit profit margins. But capitulate, they will. Why? Money. If the ball is one ball for the main PGA Tour Pro, just say for example, that means that the manufacturers have to manufacture a ball just especially for the elite in the game that they can't market to the general golfer, which means that it's wasted money as far as they're concerned. So now it's or more than likely going to be one ball for everyone. Rory McIlroy said something in his tweet which is key to this. Money talks. And that's why there will not be a separate ball for the professionals and a different one for the amateurs. That was on Tuesday. And if it wasn't enough, more Greg Allen breaking the radio with golf. This time on Friday, John Ram joining Live Golf. And this, we are told, is a big one. John Ram going is such a big deal that now if you look at the two headline acts, uh, say the three best players that the PGA Tour has and the three best players that Liv has, they're pretty much equal. Mm -hmm. So Scotty Scheffler of the world, number one, not very charismatic, but a great player. Rory McIlroy, hugely charismatic. uh, And probably after that, Patrick Cantley, not charismatic. They're probably the best three players that the PGA Tour has right now. And then you look at the top three players that they have in Liv. John Ram, Cameron Smith, Brooks Koepka. Every bit, one for one, they could take on the top three in the the PGA Mm -hmm. Tour for commercial or golf matters, you know, on the golf course, and they would be their equal. But this from a man who had been vehement that he would not join Live Golf. Not I, sir. Prompting this from Claire. This is a, a, you know, a a very naive question, but why did John Ram do this? 
It's funny because uh, would my life change with 400 million? He said this in June of 2022. Yeah. And he said, no, it wouldn't change one bit. Um, I could retire right now and be fine. And at that 29. Was, yeah, at, at, he was only 28 <laughs> at the time. And effectively, he was saying that the money wasn't the issue. Uh, like, and to, to quote the line from the song, and then he went and spoilt it all by saying something stupid like, grow the game last night, yeah. which is, you know, just this repeated mantra that uh, live, which I think is being drummed into all the players who signed for live that they're, they're growing the game. What they're doing is... So grow the game, grow the game, grow the game. How much are they paying? Because I heard 400, 500, Okay, so the, the figures have varied. $565 million is the figure that's being calculated as being the full amount when you take in all the add-ons and all the percentages of the team element that he's, he's going to be... Oh, all for the love of the game. But we shall park our cynicism. And if we started this week's playback looking back at the year gone, Riz, how about this for a sneaky peek forward? The Pantone colour of the year, it's called Peach Fuzz. <laughs> Gives all sorts of connotations, doesn't it? But Peach Fuzz. So we were talking about Peach and there's pictures of people wearing Peach. Zoe Kravitz, Taylor Swift and The Rock is wearing a satin Peach Tux jacket. That's actually nice. Peach is a device of colour. It's very reminiscent of the bad side of the 80s. I wore, uh, I remember in 1988, I wore a white tuxedo jacket to my Debs with a peach bow tie and a peach cummerbund, black trousers, and my date, my mate Carla, she wore a peach dress. And that was the thing where your cummerbund and your bow tie would match uh, your partner's dress. But anyway, peach fuzz. Would you have the stomach for peach for next year? Well, you may, you'll see it pop up all over the place because Pantone is telling us it's the colour of the year. And who are we to argue with that? And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.